But let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this next few minutes, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you will enlighten our minds. Father, I pray it will not be my words, but your words, and that together we will hear you speak to us. We're deeply aware you are changing us. Your world is changing. The church is changing. Help us to be in step with what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when you look at the topic there, changing role of pastor and church in healthcare missions, the integral mission journey. And this journey I call an integral mission. Of course, we use the word integral, not holistic. Uh, we kind of feel the global south is more and more embracing that terminology. And that journey is a scandalous, painful, joyful journey to a fuller embrace of integral mission. I'm convinced the fact that you're at this conference means you are on that journey and you're doing terrific things already. So why do I say it's a scandalous journey? It's scandalous because the cross of Jesus is always scandalous. And we cannot separate the work we do from the cross of Jesus Christ. It's painful because change is always painful. But it's joyous because we see people's lives change. The key theme that I want you to remember as we go through this is this passage in Luke 5. uh, Randy, can you read it for us, please? Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. If I say today, deep down in your heart, you know stuff is changing It cannot be the same old, same old anymore in the church for missions, for your mission organization. Who will agree with me like with that? Will you say, yeah? I think we're on the same boat here. But now here's the problem. We kind of see the proverbial hole, whether it's a hole in the gospel, in our ministry presentation, and what do we do for a solution? We try to bring a new solution and put it on that old cloth and fix the hole. Forget everything I'm going to say today. Remember this. The solution is not to bring a new methodology or a new integral approach to try to fix the old system. The new, the solution is rolling out a new garment, a new cloth. That's painful. And that's tough. Let's look at a few things here. You see that house? Change is changing. That may sound stupid, but that's what's happening, guys, today. There's many programs on, on TV these days about houses that change. Isn't that something? Uh, look at this one. Uh, you say, okay, that's a nice fireplace. And wow, look what happened to that same place. And we say, that's exciting. Change. Can I take a place like this in my basement? And voila, it looks like that. Woo, that is terrific. And I live in that shack and, oh my, Change. Or maybe you live in that little ranch and after they've done something, these people come in and a month later, that's what it looked like. What goes through your mind, and I never ask rhetorical questions, okay, when you see this change, what, what, what comes to your mind when you see that and that? Or that and that? Some words, what come up? Good, better. better? Fundamental change. Fundamental change? 
Time, investment, yes. It's harder, <laughs> it's harder than you think. It sounds like experience speaking there. Huh? There's cost, yes. There's a cost involved. But for the guy to look at this place and say it can become that, what does it take? Vision. Vision. You have to dream and to say, because if you look at, at that place and say it can become that, no. It, it takes somebody to see in his mind it can be there. Dare I say this potential comes to its real forefront, what it can be. And guys, that's what God wants to do with all of us in our ministries. I think many of our ministries look like that, and God says, I want to look like that. Or it's something like that, and God says, that's what I want it to be. Or, I've got a big ministry, but you know what God wants to do with it? That's the same house. So what you have here, I almost want to say, the content hasn't changed, the container changed. The way you approach, changed. And isn't that what God does with us when we come to know Him as Savior? When we are born into His kingdom. In my own life case, it was a very radical experience as a young adult. uh, Where I was transformed from darkness to light. And everything changed. And it's like that proverbial old hole in the basement all of a sudden became a beautiful place. Because the great architect began to work on us. God is working on His church. Now, it's for you and me to say, are we going to be willing, as it was brought out here, to pay the cost? Because it's coming there. Now, this guy, I don't know him. Have any of you heard about Robert Irvine? What's fascinating about this program, and I've got to confess, I'm not somebody, I was informed about this, and then I watched some of it to learn a little more. Here's the neat thing about him. He goes to Restaurant Impossible. And what he does in his work, he goes to a restaurant that looks like that, and the, the owners are convinced this is the best thing since sliced bread. Nothing is wrong. Cockroaches run on the floor, but they, they're so used to it, they don't see it anymore. They say, you know what, my grandfather had this restaurant. My parents had it. I've got it. Don't tell me to change. And then what Robert does, he begins to convince them, give me one week. And we'll change this place around. And he takes all his persuasive power to bring the people to a point where they said, okay, let's do it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's where I find myself many times. And I'm afraid many churches are there. We do not see the need for change. We do not see that the church is Jesus' personal answer to the problems of the world. In my own history, too, if somebody told me 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I will invest my whole life in an organization where our mission is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. I would have said, cut my right arm off right now. It's less painful. (laughs) And people say, well, Gil, it's the bride of Christ. And I said, it's Bradzilla. (laughs) Been there, worked with them. And then... It's like the Holy Spirit had to hit me over the head with a two-by-four and say, Gil, whose idea was this church thing anyway? Who came up with a church strategy? Which seminary? And of course we know, no seminary. That's God's plan and intent. So, what happened here, after 
Irvine got involved with them, that's what that place looked like. Isn't that amazing? Change. The question I have for you today is this. Are you willing to change? Because change doesn't fundamentally start with your organization or with a church or with a pastor. Yeah, that pastor, I wish you could have been here. No, it starts with me. It starts with you. And often, we need to see the potential. When last have you dreamed? When last have you truly prayed that prayer in Ephesians 3 where Paul says, and God can do immeasurably more than we can even imagine. To begin to see what can be instead of, this is it, it has been, and it will be like this forever. Change is painful. So why don't people change? Why do pastors and churches sometimes have a difficult time changing? And I think there's some false dichotomies that keep us in it. When I say dichotomy, uh, what comes to your mind? What's a dichotomy? Anybody? Separation, okay. Opposing views, right. And what I uh, uh, postulate here is that there are false dichotomies that keeps us captured and keep us from what God wants us to do. The first dichotomy I want to bring out to you is that we make a, di- a difference between churches that send out missionaries, generally located in Christian West, and churches that receive missionaries, almost exclusively in countries so-called two-thirds world. That's a dichotomy, guys, because today it's missions from everywhere to everywhere. And uh, if you're just uh, even a... A surface student of church growth, you know that the United States of America is not the hot spot for God where God is working at the moment. It's in the global south. That's where it's happening. And we've got to understand, um, and probably from the work where I'm involved at the moment, we've got some 26 offices around this country. We resettle refugees from roughly about 75, 76 different countries. Roughly about 30,000 a year. You know what that means to me? It means God is bringing the nations to us. People from so-called unengaged, unreached people groups are coming into the U.S. Are we reaching out to them? There's a belief that if I put my butt on a plane and go over the pond, I'm holy. And I'm submitting to you, it's not anymore, we shouldn't think anymore about sent missionaries and received missionaries, the churches. No, it's the church of Jesus Christ, whether it's in Kenya or whether it's in Louisville, Kentucky. Another dichotomy is between home located in some country of the Christian West and the mission field, which piggyback on this one. Do you see a little difference between the two? This one is more of a churches that some churches send and some churches receive. And I submit to you, no, uh, all churches send and all churches receive. And we've got to be open to that. And then, in my own mind, and this has been difficult, I speak as a, a, a person from my mother's side. I'm French from my dad's side. I'm Dutch. I grew up in South Africa. My oldest son and his family live in Uzbekistan. My other son live in Manila, the Philippines. So I'm kind of global. But it took me time to realize that home and field are wrong words. 
And the church and pastors and we as Christian leaders have to change and accept that. A third dichotomy is between missionaries called by God to serve and common, ordinary Christians. Uh, October the 31st was what day? What? Halloween and what else? All Saints Day and Reformation Day. That's the day when they start saying the priesthood of all believers. It, true integral mission for me, and I believe publicly I don't have time to go into all of it today, is ordinary people in community as the church doing what Jesus wants them to do. We have such an emphasis that, you know, some people are a physician and others are a missionary, or some people are lay people and others are clergy. And God says, no, it's ordinary people serving Christ where you are. I always think when um, Jesus started his earthly ministry after his baptism, maybe there was in heaven an angel that says, good news, good news. Son of man started his ministry on earth. Bad news. You should see the 12 guys he chose to help him. No. Through those ordinary people, the world was transformed. Another one, the dichotomy between the life and the mission of the church. And I think this is probably the biggest one. As the longer we make a difference between that, okay, we've got our church life, and then we have a missions program. And I, again, whether it's in the global north or global south, it's the same thing. Church is church. And it is not to think I've got a missions program to do and I've got the life of a church. No, it's, it's all intertwined. It's having the power of Jesus in us, among us, and through us, making the fullness of Christ known to everyone. It's personally in me, it's among us as a community, but also through us, to those around us. So, at the end, it's the life and the mission of a church. That's a dichotomy. And, of course, the mother of all dichotomies is between word and deed. By the way, we make a lot about word and deed. You know, talking and doing. And we forget the biggest one from integral mission is being who I am. That God is more interested in who I am than what I do. And if I can have that one right, the rest will fall in place. There are some other dichotomies too. I don't have time to go into all of them. But just think of this how we, for instance, this one, sacred work and secular work. Uh, we distinguish between proclamation and demonstration. Sacred, secular. Anyway. It can go on and on. Also, doing medicine is not so that I can have an opportunity to speak gospel. It is gospelizing. Does that make sense? When we... Here's how some people would like to write the Good Samaritan parable. Once upon a time, a person got clobbered, and you got the story, and then... It would have been a Samaritan who was clobbered, and it was the righteous God follower who came to pick him up and say, I'm going to take care of his medicine with him through medicine and take care of his wounds so that I can then earn the right to tell him about God. We know the parable of the Good Samaritan is not like that. The parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus telling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus healed ten lepers. 
Only one came back and said, you Lord. He didn't say, the other nine, zap, you got leprosy again. No, he healed them. But unconditionally. The mission's dilemma we face is whether we do more of the same, more of what we've been doing, or are we going to wrestle with some hard realities and figure out how to do missions better. I hope this makes us question every activity we do personally and as a church. And I think in that statement, Steve Saint summarized it for me. You see, and most people think, okay, now, if we've got to do it, this is what it looks like, right? I won't if I fail, and we forget that is really how we get to the end. It's okay. I mean, in, in my work, I gave, give out little cards, business-sized cards. It says, I blew it. This card exempts me from criticism. I tried something new in integral mission, and this card exempts me from criticism. I promise by the grace of God to continue to go on. Uh, so, yes, we'll fail, fail, fail. This is not about the perfect route we find, but it's to say we are Christ followers, and, and we know he wants to touch people's lives. He wants to turn the world upside down, and if we've made mistakes, we're willing to say we failed, and we're going to try something new. Not keep on doing the same old, same old, over and over. So the solution, as we move on towards this one. For me, the first part is to embrace this scandalous, painful, joyful journey towards a fuller embrace of integral mission. What do I mean by that? It simply says, I know I don't know all the answers, but I'm willing to go after them. Uh, more and more I'm interacting with believers like yourselves, wonderful people like yourselves who are pouring your lives out on behalf of the poor. And the one thing that comes out that struck me all the time is, it's like people say, what exactly, how do you do it? Oh yes, and this, this and that, and, and, and my own life, I've, I've dedicated my whole life to what I call holistic ministry. But still, this implementation, how do you bring the church involved? How does it work? It's okay. We just have to say we are committed to this journey. We're not going to settle for anything less but God's best. Before we go on to some other things, let me just talk about integral mission. What is integral mission? Uh, could you could read, read it for us, please? Ordinary people. Okay, there are seven principles there. I submit to you, I've, I believe that, and we're doing some pilots on this, that if we begin to put these seven principles in place, we're going to see lives change. We're going to see churches change. We're going to see people change. Ordinary people, okay? Priesthood of all believers. There's a whole theology for that. In community as the church, not as institution, but as a community. Uh, and by the way, it's always an expression. The church, all through the New Testament, is that expression of people. So it's not a hierarchy. Seeing people as Jesus saw them. Let's hear, how did Jesus see people? 
Let's come up with some statements here. What come to your mind? How did Jesus see people? What? Yes, he saw their needs separated from God. How else did Jesus see people on earth? Whole. Whole. You want to talk more about that? Excellent. A spiritual sector, a physical sector, an emotional sector, an intellectual sector. Yes, it's, it's all, all facets, right. Multisectoral, that's how he saw people. How else did Jesus see people? Compassion. Compassion. Excellent. He had time for them. What does that mean? How did he view them? I mean, he was going to slow down. Yes. He treated them as, he just saw who they really were. Okay. Right. Okay. He attached importance to them. And Linda, you wanted? Valuable. Valuable, right. Um, Part of the work we're doing at the moment, um, we just completed a curriculum. We call it the Transformation Tree Curriculum. We build a hole, and many of you know the Transformation Tree, where we say there's fruit. The fruit represents the things you see. The branches represent the things we do. The trunk represents the values, and the roots represent my beliefs. And I submit to you often, we say we believe something, but we don't value it. And therefore, our responses are different. So, we say, yeah, we love people, but we never spend time with them because we don't value them. But, by the way, remember as Jesus talked of people, he said, okay, you whores and sinners, come and sit there. And, oh, you faithful, come here. How did he view people? Equal. No condemnation. Uh, the only condemnation he expressed was for hypocrisy. That he addressed sternly. He was willing to associate with anyone and he ended up on a cross because he was said, you're a friend of sinners and publicans. And I think today, unfortunately, in Jesus' day, the so-called sinners flocked to him. And today they are repelled many times by the church. That's one of the reasons the church has to change. And it's a deep heart change. Seeing people as Jesus saw them, doing and teaching the things Jesus did. That's the great commission and great commandment and everything in between. We don't have to think just the stuff Jesus did and the stuff Jesus taught. That's what we've got to be busy with. Obviously, we cannot do everything all the time, but just like Jesus did, but we do part of it. I think often we are immobilized and we are paralyzed by Satan because in the back of your mind you think, I've got to do everything, you know. How can I bring everything in? And guess what? At times Jesus healed people, other times he preached the gospel. And sometimes he did both. Uh, At times I want to, in my own life, I wanted credit for seeing people's lives changed. So if you think of the angle scale, you know the angle scale is minus 10 to plus 2, whatever you want to say it. Minus 10 means this guy, if you, if you use the name of Jesus, he shoot you with his gun. And a minus 5 is willing to listen. A minus 3 is really into it. And a minus 1 is a seeker. And then you cross the line. And it's into the kingdom. And you start growing. 
Often we wanted to push everybody across that line in once. And no, maybe God called you to move them only from a minus 10 to a minus 9. And someone else is going to move them from a minus 9 to a minus 6. And five years later, someone's going to take them across the line, walk with them across that line as God takes them. Makes sense what I'm saying? So, we just got to do the things and teach the things Jesus did. In the way Jesus did. And for my Che friends here, I'm deeply committed to lapses. That's what it is. Jesus always asked questions. Jesus was always focused on the learner. Jesus was all and all for self-discovery. I mean, we can try to drill holes in people's head and put the information in. It won't make beans of difference. But as people begin to discover the rich young man, my goodness, I never knew this. I'm leaving sad, touching my heart. Now we're learning. So the way Jesus did And by the way, and I think this is the biggest place where churches and pastors has to change is to accept the fact that process is more important than content. Let that one sink in. It's not heresy, okay? It's not only what I say, but how I say it. Not what I do, but how I do it. I mean, that's for everything. You know, I love you guys. I'm thankful you're here. I mean, good night. I told you I love you. Nobody say back you love me. You know, boy. God has to work. You know what I'm trying to say here. It's not only what I say, but how. My attitude, everything. The way Jesus did. With the attitude Jesus had. Philippians 2. We all know that beautiful passage. Willing to die on a cross. And that's the most important. With the objectives and goals Jesus had. And friends, this is where the rubber hits the road. When we think what objectives Jesus had, why did he come to planet Earth? Why would, why? To reconcile this world to him, right? Several times he said, I didn't come, I came to seek and to save those who are lost. He never came just to establish a social justice system. But justice was incredibly important to him. This is one district. Think whatever country you work in. Let's, let's go. This is Sudan. This is one district in Sudan. And for ten years, a wonderful, moral atheist is working here. Doing maternal health and child survival work. For that same 10 years in District B, in same Sudan, Christians are doing maternal health and child survival. After 10 years, are the outcomes different? I want to believe they were different, but you know what? The sad thing is they've not been different. It's possible to do excellent work, but it's not different from what a wonderful, moral atheist would have done. And I don't want to come put up another false dichotomy here. I'm simply saying our faith has to be intertwined in it. Uh, there has to be a desire constantly to see people come to know Jesus. The foundation for integral mission. The foundation, and this is what pastors and churches has to embrace and do, is the, the 
Can you read for us, Mike? Isn't that true? That convicted me when I read it the first time. Still convicts me every time I see it. Uh, I'm one of those that say, yeah, prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. And then I look at my daytimer. And I think as churches, we've got to think, and as pastors, what time do we spend on it? How important is it? You see, you've got to be kidding. You spend that much time on prayer. Just a few assumptions and then we're going to try to wrap this up with more discussion. The outcome or outcomes of integral relief and development interventions will ultimately differ from the outcomes of purely secular interventions implemented through secular entities. That has to be from the beginning our mindsets. And what this means is that un, that healthy tension we have to hold between excellence in our social interventions while maintaining excellence in gospel proclamation. Uh, and that's tough. I mean, I just speak, uh, when I am, uh, in my work, as we're looking, overseeing everything, and we are re-examining each and every project we're doing, my task is to see, are those things integral, intertwined? And some places we've got extremely strong interventions socially and technically. And we get commendations from USAID and Lord knows who all. But our spiritual vibrancy there is low. Other places it's revival time all the time, you know. But you know what? Mortality rate of infants haven't changed there in five years. It's not the either or, it's a both and. I'm excited and so thankful to say there's many wonderful works that's going on through World Relief's work, especially in Cambodia and other places. But there's also weaknesses, and we've got to be honest and say, okay, it has to be different. The gospel is not autistic, neither abusive. What do I mean by that? You've heard that statement of the old church father, Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That is not a biblical statement. It's unbiblical. The Bible is clear that the gospel has to be proclaimed. How can they believe unless they've heard? So, the gospel is not autistic. It's, it's not the excuse. Uh, when I meet the needs of the people and make Clinics multiply. There's a, Lord knows there's a need for it. And may especially grassroots intervention and child survival multiply because there's a need. So many are dying unnecessarily. But just because that happened, it's not enough to say, well, I'm living the gospel. No, we've got to proclaim it too. But then, not abusive either. There's a big difference between preaching the power of the gospel versus the gospel from power. Whether you and I want to admit it or not, when we are doing interventions with people, they look up to you as a person of power. And you can manipulate them. You can make, quote-unquote, rice Christians. 
Not only is it unethical to abuse that power, but it's unethical towards them because you give them false hope they never get the real thing. You just inoculate them enough with the gospel so that they will never get the real thing. And you've got to be sure it's the Holy Spirit power that comes to them. Uh, for instance, when I talk about our, uh, our offices here in the U.S., we go out on a limb to ensure that our recipients understand. doesn't matter what their faith is. The services they receive is unconditional. But at the same time, they have to understand we come with the love of Jesus to them and that Jesus loves them. And that is not easy. And I believe that's where the church has to change. The gospel can easily become an expression of moral deism. We say, well, we proclaim the gospel because we said, you're okay, I'm okay, God is okay, and the dog is okay. Instead of, no, the gospel, what is the gospel? And then, of course, the missio dei. Uh, churches has to embrace the fact that the church does not have a mission, but the God of mission has a church. And that is a game changer. When the God of mission has a church, then it's for me to be in step with what he's doing. Then a lot of these little artificial divisions and stuff we have becomes obsolete. And I think we talked about this. The church is the bride of Christ, and it's not bride Zola. Now, let's change gears a little bit. Imagine 50 years from today, there's another conference like this taking place. And people have a case study on how you are at the moment doing your ministry. Is it possible somebody will say, what? You've got to be kidding. You're not serious. Cocaine, toothache drops, instant cure. You've got to be kidding. What about this one? Oh, Sanitized tapeworms. You know, the enemy is banished. You can eat whatever you want to. Eat, eat, eat. Oh, and you know why they're happy? Because they eat lard. These are real ads. You've got to be kidding. For a better start in life, start cola earlier. <laughs> right? How soon is too soon? Never too soon. This one takes it for me. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. And if you don't believe it, for 30 days, test camels in your T-zone for throat and taste. You've got to be kidding. Is it possible that when we look at how we have been separating physical and spiritual, and how we have been dichotomizing some of these concepts we talked about. People will say, you've got to be kidding. Is that really how they minister? Uh, Randy mentioned earlier here when they say, wait a minute. They spend $50,000 on a trip to go and build a church for $5,000 that the people could have built themselves anyway. You've got to be kidding. And at that time, people still died of hunger. How could they? When I say it's about a new cloth, I really mean it. We cannot just try to fix the hole. 
the church of Jesus Christ has to say, okay, what does it mean to come up with a new cloth? And that new cloth can be difficult to roll out. It, it can be uh, painful. Uh, think of a sweater. I'm wearing a sweater. Say, for instance, the top is blue, the bottom is red. The physical, the spiritual. See, I'm doing both, next to each other. And we say, no, that's not it. You have to be seamlessly integrated. You know, my social imp- uh, interventions must have gospel ramifications, and my gospel proclamation must have social implications. And unless that is there, it's not right. So what do I do? I have to start de- deconstructing the sweater. And as I deconstructing the sweater, heaps of wool is beginning to pile up, and my body gets cold, and people say, how dare you destroy the sweater that we've worked on so hard? And by the time the whole thing is off, you feel naked. And people say, what a waste. And then you begin to re-knit it. But now it's one red, one blue. One red, one blue, one red. And by the time that sweater is done, if I stand in that corner and you're over there, it looks like a purple sweater. That's new cloth. By the way, a friend of mine in Rwanda said the other day, he said, Maybe a better idea is to say it's not a sweater that's re-knit. Integral mission that the church has to do is like African tea. Once you put that milk in the tea, you can never separate the two again. It's there. And how do I do it? It begins with me. Because it's the being. That's where it, where it really begins with. It's the new wineskins, proverbial. God is making new wine. I think this conference is the evidence of the new wine. And if we're going to try to put the new wine in the old wineskins, your old organizations, without making changes, Jesus' prophecy will be fulfilled. That old wineskin cannot hold it. I hate to say it, but committee systems and the way we thought of missions cannot handle what God is doing. And Jesus says two things happen. It says the new wineskins will be ruined and the wine will fall down, will not be preserved. But now we also know the problem is, after drinking old wine, no one wants to drink the new. They say the old is better. And that's just human nature. That's where we are. The old is passe. It's over. This is just a a few of a secular market that tells us the way people used to do and provide aid is totally helpless, hopeless, meaningless. This is from a January article, and you can see there, read for yourself, this one, the bottom line, after spending more than $8.5 billion on anti-poverty activities between 2004 and 2011, and just how much more is something of a mystery, UNDP has only limited ability to demonstrate whether its poverty reduction activities have contributed any significant change in the lives of people. And, and the sad thing is many Christian ministries use this model. And unless we begin to think different and say, no, it will be done different, it, it will not happen. Disaster relief is an industry, Okay. And often we as churches, we jump on the same bandwagon. And the pastors say, yes, I can really get my people involved. See, we've raised $90,000 for, maybe it's the typhoon at the moment in the Philippines, you may have seen, happened today. 
maybe it's for that, and we feel good about it. No, it, it, it's not. It's, um, that's not it. This is one I, I love. This is the old way. Give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. Teach a man to fish and he'll sit in a boat all day and drink beer. <laughs> we have to change. It's not anymore about simplistic answers. The question we have to wrestle with is, okay, who's the guy that hog all the fish upstream? Who prevent the fish from coming down? How do we get the people at the river to fish anyway? And when they fish, how do we get the fish to the markets? Not anymore, how can we do 800 surgeries in two weeks with 10 physicians, but how can we prevent people from having to get the surgeries? It's, it's a different way of thinking. Uh, and once you start going to the field of saying it's preventative medicine, not curative medicine, uh, it's World War II many times, World War III, I should say. But that's where we have to think, and that's where churches have to think, and where their money is going, what they're doing, and what pastors have to think about. Can I give you uh, four ways forward here? We have to accept that current developmental practices and theory are not effective. That's a toughie. The other one is that much of today's missiological practice is less than effective and lack biblical theological support. Now, I admit both of these are worthy of conference of their own. Uh, on the first, I can just say I uh, had a meeting uh, just this past Tuesday with an ambassador or call him the, the CEO of USAID. And he had one message and he said, we need the church and faith-based organizations. You, if you've met Shah, he's a great guy, actually. And he said, what we're doing is not working. And my cry today is we as Christians, and specifically as church leaders and as mission organizations, have to say, let's change, let's be bold and, and make those changes. The other thing is to say some of our missiological practices are passé. We're not the sending country anymore. We are in need of people coming here to evangelize this country too. And the more we can embrace that, the more God will use us. A third one, uh, transition your thinking from seeing the world as complicated to complex. What do you mean by that? Imagine on that whiteboard, it's filled up with all kind of formulas that only a nuclear scientist can understand. You've seen those, right? You know what I'm talking about. And these big ones have pulled them down and up. And he's been working on this, and for eight hours he's been working, ten hours, and then he goes to his desk and he lays his hands on his, his head on his arms and he starts sleeping. Wakes up six hours later, look at it, go out, eat the orange, come back, ah! And you make a change. Another three hours, and then, now I've got it solved. That's complex. Uh, um, complicated, complex. Think of one of these guys that's sitting in those towers at the airport, air traffic controller. And he looks at his screen. And at the same time, there are about 40 different planes coming in. And you've got to think out, okay, which plane's going to land where, which gate, when do they come in, what height are they at. And at the same time, you think of, okay, some has to go get luggage down, 
Others have to get food replenished and all these things going on at the same time and schedule had to be kept and there's weather coming in and the wind changed so you've got to go to a different one. He cannot, if he lays, okay, let me just rest a little bit. If he rests for three hours, you know what? There will probably be 50 plane crashes. If you're a pastor, if you're a church leader today, a mission leader, that's your world. We have to accept it. And what that means, we need one another. It is too complex. Complicated stuff you can sort out by yourself. Complexity needs, we need one another. And I submit to you, that's what's happening in globalization today. And get rid of the yellow chair, or the yellow chairs. Uh, Simply the yellow chair is that activity, or that person in your place that controls everything. You know the story is grandma had this yellow chair and she gave it to you and she came and lived in your place. So you put the yellow chair in your living room and for 17 years you tried to decorate around that that chair. You tried different carpets, you tried different wallpapers, you tried different curtains, but that chair is ugly as can be and nothing changes, but it controls everything. And finally, she goes to Jesus. And the first thing you do is you could take that chair out of the living room, you throw it out, and for the first time, you could do what you wanted to do 18 years ago. But now you have no funds left. Because you spend it all on carpets and wallpaper and curtains that didn't help and didn't fix the problem. Every church, every ministry has a yellow chair. And unless we are willing to ask the hard, honest questions, what or who is that yellow chair, we'll keep on moving things around and never be able to do what has to be done. Finally, embrace Vujade. Not deja vu. Vujade. When this hit me some time ago, it revolutionized my life. Vujade simply means it's the ability to look at something familiar like you've never seen it before. It means I can look at my ministry, I can look at the medical interventions we do or the mission philosophy we have and say, okay, is this, let me look at it like I've never looked at it before. Because if you cannot do that, Disruptive ideas are very hard, and that's what we need. And not only that, it causes us to defend underperforming structures and resist potential breakthrough ideas. I think in this room, there are some wonderful breakthrough ideas. It's resident in you. And can I challenge you in the name of a living Christ to be a steward of that? To, to bring it out, you owe it to God, to His kingdom. The church is not irrelevant. We're making it irrelevant. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the picture I had before I became a believer, and even in my beginning Christian years, was that of the church as a mighty fortress. And those gates cannot break. Satan cannot break it. But if you're really expound that verse 
what Jesus is saying there, no, it's hell and its forces that are keeping people captive and their gates will not prevail against the church because they're going to break open and God's church will march in and set captives free and they will come to know Christ and they'll be delivered physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. The question is, do we believe that? Our time is up. Never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. We don't have to come up with a model. What we have to come up with is a sound, biblical, theological underpinnings for how to do mission. To take this fresh look at it. To be willing to make our assumptions, challenge our assumptions, and be willing to challenge all the dichotomies we have. Um, there's other things here. Uh, we don't have time to go through this passage, but I want to go through these story, uh, questions and end by this and say the size of your Jesus will determine the extent of your integral mission efforts. When you think of the paralytic, his four friends... Matthew, uh, Mark, Gospel of Mark tells us there were four who carried him to Jesus. You remember when they brought him to Jesus, why did they do it? Why did they go through all that trouble, the risk of making a hole in the roof, the risk of doing all of that? Why? Why did they even bother to carry him to Jesus? Say again. They believed he could do something. They believed if we can bring him to Jesus, it will change. For us, and I believe in this room, we all sit here with a deep interest in the physical health of people. And that's one that's often easy to measure. Do you really believe that if that person can be exposed to Jesus Christ, Jesus can change her life or his life? Do you believe that? Can I ask you a second question? Do you believe the church of Jesus Christ is the answer? Can I submit you? Remember I talked about the tree. What I believe is what the fruit are. At the moment the church is very much absent in the fruit. Is it possible that we've got to change our beliefs and our values and challenge assumptions that's against it? And then, small as the beginnings may be, as I change, as others change, I'm willing to change my mindset to see God's church becoming what He ordained it to be, knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then, that new cloth, hey, you and I don't have to weave it. The Holy Spirit will. He simply says, are you willing? Can you do it? Thank you. I think our time is up. We've got... All done. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, questions. If, uh, I, I, want, I don't want to keep you here. What time are we supposed to be? What one? Okay. Um, why don't we close in prayer? And if you have to go, please go. And uh, if you have questions, we can spend a few minutes here. Father God, we thank you. 
for who you are. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit will help each one of us to see what it is in us that has to change. Begin with me, Lord. We come and we say, whatever, wherever, whenever. Our answer in advance is yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. If you have to go, please feel free. If there's a pressing question or a statement, observation you want to make. But thank you so much. Yeah, and please feel free to, to go, okay? Um, um, yes, uh, when we launched the Western Rwanda HIV AIDS Healthcare Initiative, uh, what I did, I took the, the Western Rwanda HIV AIDS Healthcare Initiative, I took the traditional chain model and changed it to make it totally church initiated. And the difference is we did away with committee systems, we said the local church is going to lead. We're going to empower the local church. And so we started by envisioning churches. Um, had to bring them to a point where they had to understand the change we had to bring there was they're not going to be paid anything. We said pastors, do not step down to become a king from being a pastor. With other words, you will not become a program manager because the church is as strong as the pastor's. And uh, we started a separate training track for pastors specifically in what does integral mission mean, how do they do it. And then we started very small with 23 people from, it was 16 churches, training them as trainers. Uh, the churches stateside, of course, at that time I was on staff with Saddleback Church, and I had to tell, control them, so to speak, and tell them uh, we cannot... Um, we're not going to send any specific uh, short-termers for the first year. It's only afterwards that we will be sending um, short-termers over because uh, I felt strongly that the people had to take ownership of it first. And so after a year, we were strong enough. By that time, through participatory exercises, they've identified what are the problems they want to deal with. Uh, interesting, it's things like clean water, which, I mean, you, you could say, but the fact that they went through the process, they really owned it. And now it was the churches owning it. Uh, they begin to work on it. And the outside intervention was simply to come and fill up needs that they couldn't do for themselves. Uh, the biggest challenge for the change that had to take place uh, on the North American side was uh, when I, we said that from now on, nobody will go on a short-term trip unless they go through a six-month training. At that point, uh, that wasn't part of the deal. So uh, there was a lot of storming on that, but it, it took, took off. And I think uh, that gigantic change is the key thing for me was about two years into the program when our senior pastor came back and he said, we'll never again substitute speed for sustainability. And that, that was huge. But uh, and it's, it's empowered church, and I think today there's a little more than 3,000 of these trainers going on. I mean, Winnie has been part, she was there with me as we launched that 
she and Tyrus uh, in, in Rwanda, and it, it was really it was an exciting time. Yes, that's what we're doing at World Relief at the moment. We're working on what I call version 3.0. And so as a matter of fact, um, in Malawi is one of the places where we are pioneering that. Uh, there's also what we call the church empowerment zone structure, which we're using at the moment in Rwanda. And uh, what's interesting to me is we've got more and more churches here stateside that say they want to get involved there, and so in groups, we're, uh, it's like a training time for them. So we're setting up a time here where we prepare them to go to the field and then to really help make collaboration a reality. Because what I found often, the partnerships, you know, I say people have to go from what I call the kitchen table to the boardroom table. At the kitchen table, we drink tea, we love each other, and, but we don't make decisions. And then they come to the boardroom table, then, you know, usually it's the Musungus that make the decisions. And I say, no, at that table, some bring human resources, others bring, bring financial resources, but we're equals in God's sight. And, of course, the only way this thing works is if you go from the kitchen table through the communion table to the boardroom table. And so we, we're working on some models there, and collaboration is, is key. But, thank you. But the, the key thing is it's to let pastors and local churches really take ownership. That uh, they're partners, uh, they're not saying, uh, maybe the last thing I want to say is one of the better things in, in Kenya for us is a, a partnership we have with uh, some churches here in Wheaton, Churches in Kenya, and the church in Kenya itself has already donated its second $50,000 towards this project. I mean, they're doing it, working among unriched people group. And I think, for me, that's the way to go. So as World Relief, we basically think of us as a tugboat. You know, we're not the steam, steamer, we're not the people doing it. We're successful if a local church is empowered to do its work. Thank you, friends. I think the others will want to come in here, but uh, feel free to contact me later on. Tell us. It's, it's a delight to have you all here. Thank you.